we have this me-centric quantum consumer that is very, very difficult to pin down. And, and so the things that we used to do, the tactics we used to employ to attract these consumers in the past aren't going to work in the future. Hi, I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Ben Unglesby. We're senior reporters with Retail Dive, and this is our podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends. And talk about some of the things that don't always make it into our stories. This is The Backroom. Welcome to another episode of The Backroom. I am here today with a special guest, Joel Bynes, Managing Director at Alex Partners. Joel and I have talked several times in the past about retail turnarounds and transformations. He has a new book out just this year about retail and the changing landscape of retail. But Joel, uh, why don't, for, for people who don't know you, why don't you give us a quick sort of one, two minute biography? Uh, where, you know, where did you get your start in the industry? What do you do day to day? How do you spend your time? Yeah, that sounds sounds like a good place to start, Ben. And, and thank you very much for for having me on. I I guess the easiest way to say it is I got into retail because if you're a teenager growing up in suburban Massachusetts in the early '80s and you need spending money, basically either mowed lawns, worked in restaurants, or worked in retail. I found that I preferred customer facing activities, working in retail more than being a busser in restaurants. So I gravitated towards the retail industry. Uh, really started doing odd retail jobs as a mid-teen, 15, 16 years old, and 30, more than 35 years later, I am still in retail and, and I love it to this day. I often talk about getting into the industry with young people in college or in business school and invariably someone asks that question of how did you decide to go into retail? And I say, I'm gonna answer that question by asking all of you a question. How many of you plan to go into retail after you graduate from, let's say, Harvard Business School? And of course, nobody raises their hand and I say, that's why I went into retail. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first job as a teenager? Do you remember? Yeah, absolutely. So I worked at a marble and granite store in Watertown, Massachusetts called Marcello Marble and Granite. And I literally sold... selling marble and granite. Yeah. Marcello yeah. Marble and Granite. That was my first job in retail. I didn't know anything about marble and granite. In fact, my first <laughs> sale was to a woman who wanted to put um, some clay colored tile in an indoor outdoor room. And she asked me if the tile I was recommending to her was waterproof. And I said, yeah, of course it is. And it got installed and it turned out it wasn't waterproof because I had no idea whether it was or it wasn't, but I just wanted to make the sale. That was not a great way to get uh, started in the retail industry. Mr. Marcello was very, very unhappy with me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Were you paid on commission? I was actually. Yeah, this is '85. <laughs> I, I was also on weekends and afternoons and other things. I worked for uh, a man who had a big marble granite tile installation business in suburban Massachusetts, and we used to ride around in a gold-colored Dodge caravan with a wet saw and a bunch of cement in the back, putting in granite countertops and marble bathrooms and tile kitchens and so on and so forth. So I did a lot of stuff when I was a kid growing up. For listeners, you know, what do you do at Alex? I mean, how, how would you describe your job from the 30,000 foot level? What do you actually do, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, day to day through the week? Well, at the moment, 
what I do is along with my co-lead Dave Basic, I look after the global retail practice for Alex Partners. I've been at Alex Partners for almost 20 years. I spent the first half of my career in the retail industry working for retailers. Never once thought I would go into consulting. I met a man named Jay Alex, who's just a legend in the turnaround world, and he convinced me to come and join him. And I've been here ever since, and I, and I actually love it. Running a global practice in some respects takes me away from the thing that I really love doing, but I still do quite a lot of and a lot more than uh, I think other people at this stage of their consulting careers, which is rolling up my sleeves and really digging in on complex, difficult, sometimes emotional situations, problems, issues facing retail clients. And I try to spend as much of my time as I possibly can doing that. I did have a little extra time during the pandemic uh, because I wasn't on airplanes all the time and I wasn't commuting to and from hotel rooms and client offices as much. So I, I used that time to write a book, as you mentioned. So the Metail economy is the product of the pandemic for me. Uh, but other than talking about retail, talking to retailers and helping retailers solve their most complex problems uh, and spending time with my family, I don't really have a lot of time left for anything else. Who usually calls you in? Who, who hires you? I'd say it's two flavors. Most of our work comes from CEOs and some from board members that were former clients as CEOs. The work that we do is, I always like to say it's work that matters. 90% of the consulting that is sold to the retail industry and other industries it sort of doesn't really matter. You wind up with a pretty binder, it goes on a shelf, and then a few years later you hire another consulting firm. And um, you know, there's some change that's made and maybe it sticks and maybe it doesn't stick and whatever. And there's a huge industry complex built up around that. But that's not what Alex Partners does. Alex Partners tries to find the stuff that really, really, really matters. Life or death or near life or death decisions where experience dealing with these sorts of situations as well as real industry experience makes the difference and that's what we that's what we try to look for and one of the beauties of that is executives that have been exposed to it see the difference and really appreciate the difference and so they call us back because yeah. retail executives tend to be gluttons for punishment and they like to move from difficult turnaround situation <laughs> to difficult turnaround situation but they also tell other people about it so that's probably a 75 80 percent of the work that we get and the rest of it comes from private equity mostly alternative investors, people that are investors in the retail yeah. space that wind up owning something or owning a piece of something and then need the kind of help that I described before. Yeah. You'll get hired directly by executives in a, in a, in a turnaround situation. Oh, for sure. Most of, most of the hiring that gets done for our work is done by the companies themselves yeah. for the companies themselves. We do have, um, you know, we do have a bit of a reputation for also, working with companies that have unfortunately been unable to turn themselves yeah. around and need to file for bankruptcy. In those cases, sometimes, you know, the referral will come from a law firm or an investment right. bank. But again, our client is almost always the company themselves. Right. And, I, and I ask, in a, a pre-bankruptcy scenario, it makes total sense to bring in the consultants. You know, from the outside looking in, you, you kind of wonder, like, I mean, I guess I expect executives to have pretty high self-esteem <laughs> and, 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 and a pretty high uh, opinion of their own abilities to be able to call in an outsider and be like, I need help. <laughs> it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, but uh, surely there's things that 
that you you do that they can't do that you know that they don't know or that you can look at that they're not versed in well i mean really what it comes down to is where people's expertise is and having some self-awareness that hiring an expert and something you're not an expert in can add value Um, that's why we try to focus our our attention on making sure that people understand when to call us and when not to call us it's sort of the difference between maybe getting a mole removed or needing to have uh, you know, major surgery that could have repercussions if it goes long. If you're having a mole removed, you can have, you know, the third year medical school <laughs> student do it or a nurse <laughs> practitioner or whatever. But if it's serious, you want a doctor that's yeah. got the experience. And what, what, what I, my personal reputation really has been built because I, I have seen more challenging situations inside of retail and consumer businesses probably than very many other people on the planet, hundreds of experiences that are all similar in that there's a complex, difficult puzzle to be solved, but different in that each client is in a different space or in a different specialization of the consumer economy or a different size or what have you. But but the experience of having seen this over and over again and solved a wide range of problems in these same situations that's the expertise. So, you know, I would never go in and try to right. out merchant a merchant or outrun a store operators stores or any of that sort of stuff. But that's, that's their special experience. That's their superpower. Uh, my special experience is dealing with these complex problems. And, you know, the world is not filled with people who have hundreds of examples under their belt of challenging situations to draw from upon and each of us understands that there's times in our lives where we yeah. go seek out expertise and thankfully alex partners has carved out a really good niche in the retail space uh, yeah delivering well, and your book opens with you know you in a room full of, full of retail executives at a, at a company you don't name that is on a downward trajectory and doesn't necessarily want to hear what, what you have to say yeah i mean that's that that example is pretty endemic of the sort of work that I do. Yeah. And I, I I don't name the company deliberately. I don't name <laughs> any executives That's deliberately. <laughs> um, but but that that is a perfect example of people who were extremely good at certain things, but also had real blind spots about other things. And, you know, you, what you see, the, the, the folks that that were gracious enough to lend their name and endorsement to the book, you know, every, everything from executives at LVMH to Neiman Marcus, to J crew, to Cinemark, to, you know, Walgreens and kettle chips and Cholula and everything in between, you know, all of them basically say some version of the same thing, which is, you know, in Joel's unique way or with his direct approach or whatever. Um, And, you know, that's kind of the point, right, is the story as told and the book opens with that story tries to put people into my world a little bit so that they understand this was really a life or death situation for this particular company. And, and there were a lot of very good, very smart people who were doing very good, very smart things individually, but no one was really sort of putting it all together for this particular CEO and laying out 
the, the trajectory that this company had found itself on. And, and that's, that's what I pride myself on. It doesn't make me popular. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the story, but it definitely doesn't make me popular, but rarely do I have an experience like that. And then days, weeks, months, or years later, people's, people's anger dies down a little bit. And, and everyone says, yeah, we needed to hear that at that moment. And, yeah. and I really appreciate the fact that you were willing to say it. Yeah. All the turnarounds you've worked on, all, all the transformations you've worked on, like, I, I, I'm interested in what, I, I mean, we've seen the pre-pandemic era, you know, the years leading up to the pandemic were, were pretty wild years for retail. Turnarounds played out one way and, and kind of, you know, meant one thing then. The pandemic hits and it's an extreme, you know, this extreme case where everybody is, you know, everyone is raising all the even healthy companies are hoarding cash and doing extreme things we've never seen retailers doing. Late 2020 was different from early 2020. 2021 is different from late 2020. Even within the pandemic era, there's been so many different changes. But I, I'm curious, you know, how, how did turnarounds change pre-pandemic to say now? And what what is it? What is what does a retail turnaround mean? What is it going to take? What is it going to look like? And if we can even imagine a sort of post-pandemic era where we don't have the same specific set of challenges everyone's been grappling with for the past two years. Well, I mean, I think it's also it's as a start important to distinguish between a turnaround and dealing with problems. So turnarounds take years. Many, many, many years. Dealing with the pandemic is was not a turnaround. None of yeah. the actions that any of the retailers took in early 2020 and then again in late 2020, early 2021, th those were not elements of a turnaround. Those were elements of adapting to... Survival. <laughs> exactly. A, yeah. An incredibly difficult yeah. and unpredictable environment that n no one really had been through prior it you know people initially wanted to make analogies to the, the 2008 housing crisis and so on and so forth and there were some similarities but the point was long-term strategic planning basically got set to the side yeah. for all of 2020 and yeah. much of 2021 and and the industry as a whole is still dealing with a yeah. huge array of very tactical problems that need to be yeah. resolved. I was going to say, I mean, you had so many companies going into 2020 that were in turnaround mode. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're trying to right the ship, either, either, you know, severe financial problems or, you know, just trying to just trying to change their, their sales trajectory, whatever, uh, you know, within along that spectrum, you have a lot of companies that went into 2020 trying to make changes and then the pandemic hits and there's all this other, <laughs> all this other stuff you have yeah. to deal with yeah i mean I, yes but i i'm not sure you know it it, it it's not really it, it it didn't what didn't really unfold like that it it, it retail is in a constant state of renewal and rebirth, a constant state of destruction and rebirth. Business models come and go, but they come and go over a generation. 
20 to 40 years. And it's been fairly consistent the way that those waves have washed over the retail industry. And as they wash over it, there are casualties and then there are turnarounds and then there are new entrants and then there's another sort of growth phase and so on and so forth. The pandemic is is just something that happened kind of in the middle of one of these transitional phases. One of the things that I talk about in my book is the, the, the fact of understanding really understanding what has happened to consumers, which is why I refer yeah. to this as me-tail, is we have right. this me-centric quantum consumer that is very, very difficult to pin down. And right. and so the things that we used to do, the tactics we used to employ to attract these consumers in the past aren't going to work in the future. That's what I mean about this sort of generational shift in terms of turning around a business and orienting a business towards a new destination, a new compass point on the horizon. But that happens over over a fairly extended period of time. But it has to start with a galvanizing moment. You know, if you think about Hubert Jolie at Best Buy, everyone now says, oh, that was predictable. And of course, they were able to survive and everything else. But if you, if, you know, those of us that have been in the industry understand everyone was saying that Best Buy was the next blockbuster. And, and it was right. a foregone conclusion with the an analyst community that the company was beyond repair and Amazon was going to put them out of business. And Hubert came in and he said, I have a different idea. Why don't we talk to our customers and figure out what it is that they want? And let's try to provide some of that to them. Um, you have a similar example with, and I talk about all this in the book, but you have a similar example with uh, Brian Cornell at Target. Brian basically yeah. said, our customers want our stores to be better and they want better local infrastructure and they want our associates to be happier and they want our aisles to be wider and our lighting to be better and our signage to be clearer and so on and so forth. They want our products to be to be more fashionable. And, and, and he, he went all in on things that at the time the investor community said that's just crazy stores are dead why are you investing in stores you know so these yeah. these counter counter approaches to what everyone thinks is conventional wisdom you know these people have the courage of their convictions and of course you know they're rewarded with huge success uh, when they're right as was the case yeah. with Hubert and as is the case right now with Target what and presumably i mean Every retailer is trying to listen to their customers and trying to have conversations with their with their customers. I mean, is it, do you see differences in the quality of how retailers collect data from their customers, analyze data from their customers, actually reach out and communicate with their customers? And we have that sense that Target is hyper attuned to their to their customers, but I don't have a we don't necessarily have a window into how they're actually you know interacting with their customers, anticipating their needs anticipating how they'll respond to to this or that is it testing is it data is it surveys is it listening to your employees because your employees are the ones who actually talk to these people is it other things all of the above well it's definitely all of the above but 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 i i, I think anyone listening to this that thinks about themselves as a consumer not as an executive will recognize themselves in the emotion that they don't always feel like the retailers are listening to them. I, I think most consumers believe that, you know, this 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 old line that the customer is always right is kind of baloney. And most of the time as consumers, we don't really feel like we're always right. We feel like the company thinks that they're always right. The issue isn't the tactics 
through which that you listen you listen to customers so whether it's a survey or a focus group or via employee feedback or whatever it is all of those are important to one degree or another the point is do you listen to what they're saying and act on it and that's the issue the issue is there are too many retail and consumer and hospitality and restaurant executives who maybe not consciously although many consciously but, but even unconsciously just simply think that they know better than their customers and so the question that metail opposes the metail economy book poses is is are you smarter than your customer and if you put everything that you think you need to do through the lens of your customer and ask yourself whether your customer will value this thing that you're doing the way you're doing it, if your answer to all of that is yes, then good for you. You are on your retail transformation. But the vast majority of the time, if executives are honest with themselves, they'll step back and say, actually, I'm not sure. Or where's the data that supports this or what have you? I mean, the best contrast that I can think of just off the top of my head right now is Target making smart acquisitions of last mile, last mile delivery company like Shipt, investing billions of dollars in their stores and their associates and so on and so forth. And then on the other side of the, the aisle, you have Walmart, who spent $3 billion for Jet.com and they bought Moose Jaw and Bonobos. I doubt that the Walmart customer was saying, please buy a bunch of <laughs> unconnected, direct-to-consumer, unprofitable internet companies. Yeah. yeah, I just don't think that's what the customer was saying. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I always got the sense that they were, they were either chasing a different customer or trying to expand into, into demographics that, you know, they were chasing growth. Well, maybe. Really... They, they, they bought into this thing that strategy consultants sell a lot, which is you can, you can really pick up, you can upskill. This is a phrase that is used in management consulting circles um, through osmosis. Hmm. If you yeah. want to get digital fast, right. go buy a bunch of digital companies and, right. and through osmosis, Though that digital DNA will permeate your company. And, you know, so first right. of all, a $200 billion retailer goes and buys, you know, a billion dollars worth of revenue or half a billion dollars worth of revenue and thinks that there's going to be any osmosis. I mean, to me, yeah. it's like buying floor seats to a Celtics game and thinking that's going to improve your basketball skills. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, it's yeah. just, it, it just doesn't work that way. And when you step backwards, you say, okay, they did it for, other reasons. I'm sure there's going to be some analysts listening to this saying, well, if you look at what they paid for these businesses and then you look at the market cap that was created because the investors believed in growth, okay, fine. But that's not doing anything to transform the customer value proposition in a way that customers want. And so now, seven years, six years after Target started its It's All About the Stores, Walmart is saying it's all about the stores. I mean, Daphne just wrote about this this week. I mean, when when I look at the retail world, I I see a lot of influence by financial players. When when we talk about who's struggling, who's doing well, you have young upstarts that are very popular with customers, but they're also they also have a lot of venture capital money to burn. Investors willing to lose money 
uh, so that they can keep prices low or, you know, make a bunch of investments. On on the struggling side, you have, I mean, we've been through waves of bankruptcies of, of companies that were, that, that were over leveraged. I see money shaping how things play out to, to some degree. Do you think that plays a role or do you think it's all about all about how, you know, a, a retailer interacts with their customer? Well, I mean, there are two sides of the same coin. Yes, of course, money plays yeah. a role. But if you're listening yeah. to your customer and you're providing things that your customer wants, you're less likely to have the kind of money that is playing the sort of role you're talking about um, either get you into a situation where you're over levered and you have to file for bankruptcy or get you into a situation yeah. where the activist community is targeting you. Right. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the, first of all, we should not hold retail aside as as being somehow unique in with respect to money making an outsized difference. I mean, it's it's every industry, it's politics, right. it's society, you know, so so it's sort of happening to everyone everywhere. Um, I think what happens for those of us who who have spent our entire lives in retail or who cover retail or are passionate about retail, um, I think there are two things. I think one is there is this tendency to listen to the last generation who claim to be experts that really don't have any understanding about how things work today. Um, and yeah. I think the other thing is there's a tendency to think that that one thing is the same as another thing. So I feel a lot yeah. of calls right now from people saying, well, you had an activist going after Macy's and you have an activist going after Kohl's and you had JCPenney filing for bankruptcy. Isn't this all an example of the same thing? And my answer is no, they're examples of three completely different things. So, yeah. you know, the, it, you sort of have to, you really have to, you have to understand it at a, at a much more granular level than most of the industry pundits or outside observers um, understand it. But we also have to accept the fact that there, there are entire industries of people out there who are not retailers, who make a living by investing in retailers, analyzing retailers, criticizing retailers, whatever, you know, whatever you want to, you want to say. So we exist as retailers inside of that ecosystem, but the single best antidote to not having the money create an undue outsized influence is performance. And there are a lot of examples of retailers that have been performing well and are going to continue to perform well. And most of them are examples of places where they're delivering something to a set of consumers in a consistent way, regardless of what the siren songs of, of other places they could spend their money might be. Yeah. You mentioned activist investors. In the case of Macy's, one of the things that has, you know, that is in the news is that there's there's some interest in them spinning off their e-commerce business the way that Saks did. And to be clear, Alex, I, th I believe Alex has worked on Saks and Macy's, correct? Well, I, I'm not going to comment on who any of our clients are. And I, I don't want to talk about the Macy's situation specifically, but but sure. what I can say is the 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 news about the digital split that Sachs engaged in set off a wave of really kind of anxious 
uh, peanut gallery punditry about yeah. the move by people who have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. And <laughs> um, it also got the attention of the activist community. But but it's 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 not at all what people think it is or people are saying it is or whatever. And as as people basically what happened was there was just this massive amount of interest and 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 what is going on and this is crazy and how could they be so stupid and it's anti omni and then slowly what's happened is all of the people that actually care enough to figure out what's going on have started to investigate it they've started to learn more about what Sachs did and now we are at a place where we belong which is it is a fascinatingly brilliant idea that Richard Baker came up with for Sachs that does not mean that it is the right answer for all retail, which is basically, you know, we headed in that direction. Every analyst, every every investor said every retailer should do this. No, every retailer shouldn't do this. And yet all of the, you know, the, well, the well, peanut why, gallery why, people saying this is the stupidest idea ever. No, they don't even understand what the idea is. Why, and then you get well, balance. Why, why was it, why do you say it was brilliant for Sachs? I mean, t tell us why it was a good I, idea. I can't for... talk about the Sachs situation, Ben. You know yeah. that. Well, I mean, t tell me generally why it could work for for some for some retailers. Like, it, 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 we would have to do an entirely a, a podcast entirely on what a digital separation is and what a digital separation is. And I cannot do it justice in a short period of time. Yeah. All I can tell you is it's based on a fundamental premise that stores will continue to be important to retail really forever. Yeah. But that where the action is, is digital. That's the, that's the premise. That's the thing that all the people who thought it was a bad idea miss. It's not a complicated idea in the slightest. Everyone says, well, now you have to deal with all these things. What happens if somebody buys online and returns in store? Guess what? They had to deal with all those things before they separated their business. Yeah. It doesn't introduce extra complexity. It's invisible to the customer. Every single other industry in the world already outsources customer-facing activities to third parties, including retailers, by the way. Many of them don't even run their own customer service departments or online service departments. And so it just, it got, it got all this, there were all these people popping off who didn't know what they were talking about, who turned it into this crazy thing. And then all those people went away. You don't hear from them anymore because they began to realize how wrong they were. <laughs> and then the investors came in and they sort of said, oh, we got to do this everywhere. And it's all just about financial hocus pocus. And it's not about financial hocus pocus. And a lot of investors are finding that out right now. Um, but it's just it's just smart because it, it because it basically looks out 10 to 20 years in the future. It imagines what the competitive landscape is going to look like, where the war will be won and lost, but also the incredible importance of looking like one company to a customer and the incredible importance of a store, which is going to change and what ha what the role of a store will change. And so having a company that can focus on operationally making sure that you're doing the best job you can and you're having a company that can focus digitally on doing the best job is, that you can that is completely committed to a seamless experience, experience to the customer allows each business to focus on one thing and do it well. 
And the one thing we know about retailers is they have too many priorities and they're focusing on too many things and they're sub-optimizing each of them because of it. And you say it's not a great idea for everyone. I mean, with the targets of the world, with the Dicks, with the Walmarts, with the Best Buys, would they be served by by doing something like this? I, don't, I have no idea. Yeah. There is a set of characteristics that I'm not going to reveal on this show <laughs> that determines whether it's a good idea or not a good idea. Yeah. It's a very straightforward process you go yeah. through and you come out the other side with an understanding that it either might be a good idea and it's worth doing more investigation or it might not be a good idea. For 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 anyone wanting to investigate it, can we is there any way to even know how this thing works or do you have to see the the private contract between the two companies? I'm not sure I know how to answer that question. I not not because I don't want to answer it. I'm not sure what you're asking. I mean, what? you just have to you just have to be a little bit smart and creative and think hard and you what? can figure out how it works. <laughs> Cuz I was going to say I mean, I have a million questions about how it works and and from what I can see most of the most of the answers aren't public. So how can anyone who's not inside the transaction and inside the the two companies even know whether it's a good idea or not? Well, you have, I'm not talking about operationally how one thing works with another thing. I'm talking about the very beginning of the process, which is, is it worth evaluating more fully and getting yeah. down to the level of places that, that you have a zillion questions? And by the way, I doubt very much you have a zillion questions because everyone <laughs> tells me they have a zillion questions. And after three or four questions, they go, oh, I get it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this makes total sense. <laughs> How about this? Uh, Anybody that's wondering how this works, just call me. I'm easy to find. <laughs> fair, fair. Totally different subject. When we're looking ahead over the next couple of years and retailers are trying to figure out where, you know, where to put my effort, where to put my money, the world is going to be different in ways we don't even understand yet. What, what do you do? Like, how do, you, how do you even begin to figure out where you should be investing to turn around to, to make yourself healthy when you don't, I mean, <laughs> that's a softball, Ben. You know what my answer is? First step is go purchase a copy <laughs> of the Metail economy, six strategies for transforming your business to thrive in the me centric consumer revolution. <laughs> that's the first step. That's why I spent two and a half years writing a book to answer the question you just asked me. So, so I, I, I don't know whether that's the answer you were looking for, but um, I'm going to take that as a, as a nice teed up. Okay. Well, that's like, that's what, like a $20 investment. 28 bucks, but it can ha be had probably for 25. I still got, I still got like $20 million left to invest, $100 million left to invest. Where do I go next? Yeah. Well, look, so, um, and I, I, I talk about this in the book, but, but I, I have something that I've come to call the Joel's immutable law of turnarounds and the immutable law of turnarounds is money equals time equals options. And it only works one way. The more money you have, the more time you have, the more time you have, the more options you have. So step one of a transformation journey is to make sure you have as much money as you possibly can. And you can see why it doesn't work the other way. Because if you have a lot of options, that's very paralyzing. It takes a long time to work through all those options. And then by the time you work through them, you've lost the opportunity to build that pool of money. 
right? So the money is the first step. You can get outside investment if they believe in your turnaround vision. You can generate the, the, that money internally. You can lower your costs. You can increase your margins. You can make investments in things that'll have a shorter term return. You can not make investments in things and so on and so forth. But that's, that is, you know, not to, to, to really sort of get down to answering your question. That's the first, that's like E equals MC squared for turning around a retail business. Um, so that's step one. Step one is this is going to take a long time. It's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to be harder than we think. And the one thing that you need to know for sure is you need as much money as you possibly can. So you have as much time because you're going to make mistakes, right? You have to try things. Some, some stuff's going to work. Sometimes stuff's not going to work. Even the things that work are going to take a long time to sort of permeate through the consumer economy and start making a difference at scale and so on and so forth. So that's, that's really the first focus. But the second thing, again, not to, not to be, not to be a book promoter (laughs) for a minute, but the second thing is to understand that the consumer has changed forever in a way that none of us that have grown up in retail have had to deal with before. Consumers are now me centric and quantum. Me-centric is easy. Everybody understands what me-centricity is. Quantum is different. Quantum is the ability to be two completely different types of consumers simultaneously, right? That creates an exponential degree of difficulty, order of magnitude problem to be solved by retail executives and marketers. And so that's why it's so important to understand who you want to be to these consumers, because at the end of the day, the consumers are the one that are ones that are going to decide, not you any longer. The consumers have all the power. I, I say it's the democratization of consumerism, but basically consumers have always had agency, but they've never had power. And now because of information and because of access, consumers really have the power in the relationship. They're the ones that will decide whether your influencer is a good or a bad influencer. They're the ones that will decide whether your product is good or bad, whether the color palette is the right color palette, whether the, you know, that sort of stuff. And it doesn't mean you just throw up your hands and give up like, oh, well, we can't do anything because the consumer's in charge. It just means that you have to put everything that you're going to do in this transformation journey through the lens of the consumer. Let's say you want to add a convenience, right? I have my six C's in the book. Convenience is one of them. The question is convenient for whom? And if the answer isn't convenient for the customer and then work backwards, then stop and redo it. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. Joel, thanks so much for for coming on the the podcast, man. Great talking. It was great talking to you too, Ben. I I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I love what you do at Retail Dive and, and I can't thank you enough for having me on. This episode of The Backroom is produced and edited by Caroline Jansen. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.